The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 24, verse 14. The 14th verse in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And this Gospel of the Kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. We come back to this verse once more, this verse which is in so many senses the most important and the pivotal and crucial verse in this momentous 24th chapter of this gospel according to St. Matthew. Let us again be clear in our minds as to the setting of this remarkable and most encouraging statement. Our Lord here, you remember, in uh, reply to the request of the disciples who had asked him to let them know when these things that he'd been talking about were going to happen. He'd been prophesying, you recall, the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And they were amazed at this. But he assures them that the days were coming when these things would most definitely come to pass. He says, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then a little later the disciples asked him, saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? and of the end of the world. And he proceeds to answer. And all who are familiar with this chapter know that it's a chapter that is full of foreboding. It is full of a prophecy of wars and rumors of wars, of pestilences, trials, earthquakes, tribulations. That's the picture he paints. It's a dark and a somber picture. These things, he says, are but the beginning of sorrows. Worse things are going to happen. And so he proceeds to instruct them to be careful and to be ready and to be observant. Well, now then, in the midst of all these forebodings of evil, in all these prophecies and predictions of calamities and troubles and of a final judgment of the whole world, we have this verse. Thank God, I say, for this 14th verse our condition would be completely and utterly hopeless but for this. Here, you see, in the midst of this prophecy of gloom, despair and disaster, he talks about a gospel, which means good news. The picture is not one of unrelieved gloom. History is not altogether outside the control of God. There is another message. There's another aspect. There is something that can be said in the midst of the darkness. There is a light. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. Well, now then, that is what we are considering. And you remember we have seen something like this. Because we've got to keep the whole in our mind if we are to see the relevance of any individual part. The whole is this. The world as such, outside God, 
is under the wrath of God and is doomed to judgment and to perdition. That's perfectly clear, not only here, but elsewhere, in the Gospels and in the whole of the Bible, going right away up to that book of Revelation at the end. Sin is going to be punished. God is very patient. With him a thousand years are but as one day, and one day as a thousand years. But God is not slack concerning his promises, as the Apostle Peter put it. And to a generation that arrogantly cries out, where is the promise of his coming? The answer is, it will come. God is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Oh yes, it's coming. The end of history, the final judgment, And what I'm saying is that according to his teaching, all those who are outside the life of God and who don't live to his glory, those who belong, in other words, to what is called the world, will be condemned to final destruction. But, here is the gospel. God has provided a way whereby men and women individually can be delivered from that. He's forming a new people, a new company, if you like, a new kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom. He began doing it away back at the dawn of history. We see a division even in the children of Adam and Eve, Cain remaining in the world, Abel, in God's kingdom. And so it has gone up, the kingdom of God. Therefore, in the midst of all that we can see and all we know about the history of the world and of mankind, there is this other history that God is working out, that God is producing. He is, I say, taking people out of the world into his own kingdom. And the glorious promise for these people is this, that they are not only citizens of the kingdom of God and of the kingdom of heaven, but that when the final disaster and calamity shall come, They shall be safe. They shall shine forth in the glory of their Father. There is no doom for them. They have already passed from judgment unto life. They are safe. When the great division takes place, the goats and the sheep, they are in safety. They belong to the judge. They belong to God. They are citizens of the kingdom of God. Now that is the the gospel of the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom, he says, this good news of the possibility of a way of escape and of safety to all eternity, this is going to be preached in all nations as a witness and a testimony unto all nations. And then the end shall come. Well, very well then, we have deduced this that the most important thing for everybody in this world at this moment is to discover the way of entering into this kingdom of God. I mustn't keep you again by reminding you of the seriousness of the times in which we are living. Life has never been so precarious. No man in his senses is going to postpone a matter like this. Our whole life is uncertain. Life is always uncertain. Because of the frailty of our bodies, 
because of these infecting germs and organisms that are everywhere round and about us, life is so precarious. We never know what's going to happen to us. But today, of all ages in the history of the world, don't you feel it in the very atmosphere? With these latest inventions and these dread possibilities, who would like to prophesy what's going to happen in the next ten years without going any further? I say, therefore, that in a world like this, the one really urgent matter is, how can one enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? How can one arrive at this place of safety and of security and of protection? And we've even started answering that question. The first question a man asks at such a point must be this. What are the characteristics of that kingdom? What are the people like who belong to that kingdom? We've answered the question. You get the answer in the Beatitudes, in the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, there at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the sort of people who belong to this kingdom. And you remember some of the other things, how our Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot enter. And we are not surprised when we realize it's the kingdom of God and when we realize the truth about ourselves. We realize the need of a new nature. We must be born again. And we are told that we must become as little children. Very well. The next thing we are told is this. We look at this kingdom. We stand outside the gate of entry. It's a straight gate. It leads to a narrow way. And we feel it's utterly impossible. Oh, how can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear that uncreated being? Oh, I read to you that fourth chapter of the book of Revelation at the beginning because it gives us a glimpse of heaven. It's only a picture. Heaven is infinitely above that. Language is inadequate to describe it or to give us any accurate notion of it. But that's just some dim indication of what it's like. How can you and I exist in a place and in an atmosphere like that? That's the question. And we realize the utter impossibility of it all. And there we say, well, are we undone? What's the value of the good news of the kingdom to me? If the moment you begin to describe it, you damn me because you show me that I'm a stranger to such a kingdom and that I can never fit myself to enter into it and to take a worthy place within it. Is this good news? Thank God we don't stop there. We see that there is one person who makes an entire difference. It was the very person who was speaking, who uttered these words nearly 2,000 years ago. And we see, therefore, that the one thing that matters is that we should know who he is and what he is and what he has done and what he has made possible for us. There he stands before us. In the midst, you see, of his prophecy of doom and of judgment and of disaster, he holds out this hope. And I say the hope is found and it is realized only in him. And therefore our problem reduces itself to this. We have only one thing to do, my dear friends, and that is to look at him. 
to stand and to face him, or to use the language of the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, to consider him. Here I say, and here alone, is one who seems to have the key to the whole problem of history and of time, to the whole problem of our eternal and everlasting destiny. Now then, that is the matter to which I want to call your attention this evening. Did you notice how it's put there at the beginning of the fifth chapter of that book of Revelation? This is the position. Here are we in this world, I say, aware of these tremendous things that are happening round and about us. All these political movements, all the international comings and goings. Well, we can see it for birds no good for us. We are all wondering what's going to happen. And not only are we concerned about that, we are asking, I hope, a further question and a deeper question. And the profounder question is this. What's the meaning of all this? What's the matter with the human race? What is the whole business of history? What's it all leading to? Where's it going to end? Now then, that's our position. We read our philosophers. We read our historians. We know they have different schools amongst them and that they're contradicting one another. We know that the prophecies, the confident prophecies of the end of the last century have every one of them been falsified. That all our politicians and leaders and all others have been proved perfectly clearly not to understand the situation. And what can we say? Are we not in the position that John describes himself there in the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation? We see the problem, the problem of history. There is the book of history. Yes, but it's sealed. It's written within and on the backside, within and without. There is the secret, if only we could discover it, the roll, the scroll, the book of history. But it's sealed. What can we do about it? Who can break the seals and open the book and unfold the scroll for us? Who can give us some leading and guidance with regard to history and its meaning and its destiny? And there was no man in heaven or on earth or under the earth that was strong enough to break the seals and worthy to open the book. And John wept. And it's not surprising, is it? And you know, my friends, any man who has any real understanding of the state of the world tonight and his own position in it is a man who is certain to weep. You see, the main trouble with mankind is tonight that it isn't weeping. With the world as it is, what's it doing? Looking at the television. Being entertained and amused. With the world as it is, you know the fact that we're not all weeping and in sackcloth and ashes is the final condemnation of us. We are fiddling while Rome burns. We are whistling like children in the dark to keep up our courage. We are not facing it. If we faced it, we would weep. Men are failing everywhere. There is no one who can give us light and guidance and instruction. And like John, I say, any man who rarely thinks and faces the situation is desperate, he's alarmed, he's weeping in some shape or form. Why, let me say this to his credit. 
A man like Mr. Aldous Huxley is in his way weeping. Because he can see what's happening. He can see the forces that are at work in the world. He can see that overpopulation in itself is a danger. That there is a possibility of a world starvation. Here is a man who's not a Christian, who's opposed to Christianity and who ridicules it. But at any rate, he's got brains and he can think and he sees what's happening. He has no solution whatsoever. He's a prophet of despair, but at any rate, he sees the problem. And metaphorically, he's weeping, he's alarmed. I say that any man who thinks must be alarmed and must in some shape or form be weeping. Because, you see, you see the problem and you say, is there no one in heaven or earth or under the earth, is there no one who's strong enough to break the seals and to unfold and to unroll the scroll and the book? And there isn't. And I'm standing in this pulpit just to say that and to assert it, to asseverate it, if you like. There is no man, there is no teaching, there is no philosophy that is of the slightest help to the world this evening. Not one. If there is, would you mind telling me what it is? There isn't. And so we are like John, we are weeping in hopelessness. Thank God the message comes. Weep not. There is one who is able, strong enough, has the right and the capacity to break the seals, and to open and to unfold the book of history. Who is he? He's the very one who was speaking on this occasion here in reply to the questions of his own disciples. I say, therefore, my dear friends, that our business is to look at him. As you are concerned with the problem of the world tonight, don't look to the future. We've already told you what the future is. It's dark. It's desperate. It's hopeless. It's going to get worse and worse. But also, somebody, if I'd known you were going to say a thing like that, I wouldn't have come to your service. But my dear friend, how does that help you? The fact that you stop your ears and put blinkers before your eyes doesn't change the situation. It's still the same. Religion, we are told, is the dope of the people. Do you know it's the only thing that's getting people to face facts today? It's the world that's doping itself. It's the world that doesn't want to face the facts. Oh, they say that's so miserable. Don't tell me things like that. Is that reason? Is that thinking? Is that understanding? That's doping yourself. That's drugging yourself. That's blinding yourself to unpleasant facts. Here is the stark reality. I would therefore put it again to you like this. Go back and read the history. History written in past centuries. Go back and read your philosophies. As men have attempted their forecasts of the course of history and of time, read them all. And this is what you'll find. There is only one who has ever made a prophecy of the future course of history and of the world who has proved to be right. And it is this Jesus of Nazareth who are speaking to these disciples on this occasion that we are considering together this evening. Every other one has been wrong. He has prophesied nearly 2,000 years ago what was going to happen. And it has happened. And therefore I say that our business is to look at him. 
is to listen to his claims, is to concentrate our attention entirely upon him. For the gospel of the kingdom is ultimately the gospel concerning this person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now then, let me put it like this. The whole of the Old Testament points forward to him. Back in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. It's the only bit of light in the darkness of fallen Eden. Enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, earning your bread by the sweat of your brow, thorns and briars, diseases, pestilences, hopelessness, seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. There it begins. And you can trace it right through your Old Testament. These prophecies of this deliverer who was to come. And they're all looking forward to him. The seed of David out of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be the one. The prophets tell of him. They wax lyrical. They become eloquent. They burst out in their poetic imagery as they see his coming prophetically. God gave them a vision and a glimpse and they're all crying out for him and looking forward to him. The whole of the Old Testament focuses attention upon this person. And then a babe was born in Bethlehem. He grows up and at the age of 30 begins to preach. Here he is. And you notice his claims about himself. As I was closing last Sunday evening, I reminded you of the astonishing thing that we have even in this very verse. Here is one, a carpenter, a Jew, on the verge of being crucified, put to death in weakness, who just stands and says, Though I'm about to die, this gospel of the kingdom concerning me shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And of course, what he prophesied has, as I say, literally come to pass. But wait a minute, let's consider some other things that he said. Somebody may say to me, but why should I consider this Jesus Christ of yours? Why, why, I want to know something about how to solve our problems. I want to know what's going to happen to Berlin. Is there something going to happen at the end of May or isn't there? My dear friend, nobody can tell you what's going to happen. And I'd be wasting your time if I attempted to talk about things like that or the problems of our good friends in South Africa or Neasaland or anywhere else. I'm not competent to speak. I don't know. All I do know is this, that what the future of the world is going to be is what I'm told in this chapter that I'm certain of. I know there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. I know that it is the most fatuous illusion to imagine that a good time is coming. People have been trying to say that for centuries. It's never come. It never will. No, no. There's only one thing to consider. How can I enter this kingdom? And here's the only one who can tell me. Here's the Lord of history. Here's the master of the future. Here is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That he's strong enough and big enough. He can break the seals. He is controlling history. He's the Lord of the kingdom of God. Very well, let's listen to him. What does he say? 
I listen to him and I hear him saying, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. But I say unto you, who is this? He was only a carpenter. He hadn't even been trained as a Pharisee. And yet he stands and he says, I say unto you, with dogmatism, with confidence, with supreme assurance. I watch him and this is what I find him doing. I see some men working there by the side of some boats. They were mending the nets. He approaches them and he says, follow me. And they left all and followed him. Now there is no greater demand a person can ever make upon another than this command to follow me. You leave everything. You abandon your will. You yield yourself. You surrender yourself. Follow me. And they rose up, left their father and the boats and everything, and went after him. Who is this who dares to ask people to give him a totalitarian allegiance? Follow me. But wait a minute. I listened to him on another occasion, and this is what I hear him saying. I... I'm the light of the world. What a stupendous statement. Uh, mark you again, the carpenter of Nazareth, the Galilean. And here he stands and says, I am the light of the world. What's he talking about? What about Plato? What about Socrates? What about Aristotle? What about the great succession, the great line of thinkers and of philosophers? Well, he knows. He's aware of them. But this is what he says. I and I alone, that's what it means, am the light of the world. And you know he is. You examine the others. What you want light on? Well, what we want light on is this, isn't it? What is life? What is death? What lies beyond death? What is the soul? How can one live truly in this world? Do you know he's the only one who can give you light on those questions? Oh, the others can agitate their questions. They can put up their problems and argue most cleverly. Theory against theory. It's brilliant, you say. It's wonderful. Yes, but you know the problem is how to live. How to deal with temptations. How to deal with passions and lusts and evil desires. That's where we want light. And nobody can give it. This one can. I am the light of the world. Would you like to know God? Would you like to know what God is like? Well, go and ask these others and they can't tell you. They try to get near him. They say, they say this and that about him. They're trying to describe him. But they're honest enough to admit they don't know him. They've never met him. It's all speculation. But here is one who says, He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. And he says, No man knoweth the Father save the Son. No man, he says, can ascend into heaven. But he that has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, here is one who can give us light on God. Light through the grave. Light into eternity. I am the light of the world. And listen, he goes on. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Try and find God as your Father without him. Consult your, your authorities. They can't help you. They don't know themselves. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Listen to him again. You say you want to enter the kingdom. That's the thing you say. Oh, that I might be a citizen of that kingdom. How can I get in? He stands before you and he says, I am the door. The door. By me. If any man enter in, he shall go in and out and find pasture. The door. The only door of entry. Listen to him again. He comes to us in our failure, our sin, our penury, our utter hopelessness. And he says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And that's what I need. I look at that kingdom. I see my helplessness, my death. I'm dead in trespasses. I need life. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And then listen to him just at the end. And I, he said, if I be lifted up, that's to say, if I'm put on a cross, if I am crucified and raised on a tree, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And then, just at the very last, when he's facing Pontius Pilate in this trial, he looks at him and says, he who was a representative of an emperor, here stands a carpenter as a prisoner, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now there are his claims, you see. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. Ah, yes, it's his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. Who is this person who thus speaks? Who is this prophet who forecasts the course of history even to the ultimate consummation? Who is he, I ask? And there is only one, only one answer to the question. This is the Son of God. This is the eternal Son of God. And here he is speaking in this world. What is, he, what is he here for? Why does he speak? The answer is this. He is the only one who can admit us into that kingdom. There is no entry apart from him. We've seen its nature. We cannot do it. Men cannot help us. There is only one. I am the door. He and he alone can admit us into the kingdom. Now then, our question narrows down to this. How does he do so? How does he admit us into the kingdom? Let me tell you very hurriedly what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell us that he admits us into the kingdom by teaching us how we can put ourselves into the kingdom. He hasn't come to say to us, now do this, that, and the other, and you'll be in the kingdom. Why not? Well, because he knows before he begins that we cannot do that. God had already given his ten commandments to the ancient nation. Nobody had kept it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you know, if I believed that Jesus Christ had come into the world just to tell me how to save myself, I should be of all men the most miserable. I should be the most unhappy man in the universe. I cannot satisfy myself. I cannot even keep my own code. 
What if he tells me I'm undone, I'm damned at the very beginning? He didn't come to tell us how to save ourselves. We cannot do it. Neither would I remind you again as he come into this world in order to reform it and to reform its kingdoms. There is no greater fallacy than that. That Jesus Christ came into the world as a political reformer or a social reformer. And that he's come and told us, if you do this and that, you'll introduce my reforms and the world will be saved. No, no, the world is under doom. The world is to be destroyed. He hasn't come to reform the world. He never said so. He said the exact opposite. Neither, and let us observe this, neither has he come at this point to set up a visible kingdom in this world. That's to come later. But for the time being, his kingdom is not visible. Don't you remember? One afternoon he turned to the people, you'll find it in the 17th chapter of Luke's Gospel, And some of these Pharisees and scribes and authorities came to him and said, Tell us, when is this kingdom of yours coming? You're talking all along about your kingdom. Well, where, where, when is your kingdom coming? Where? When are you going to set yourself up as king? And he looked at them and he said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. The kingdom of God doesn't come with outward appearance and with outward show. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. So don't listen to them who say to you, Lo here or lo there. Don't listen to the people who say, Ah, we are going to set up the kingdom of God with our politics and our socialism and all our protests and councils of actions. We are setting up... Don't listen to them, he says. Lo here, lo there. No, no. The kingdom of God cometh not with outward observation. For lo, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God so far is spiritual. It is unseen. His kingdom is not of this world. It isn't like these earthly kingdoms. It's a spiritual realm which he is now setting up. And ultimately it will be a visible kingdom, but not yet. Very well then, how does he set up this kingdom of his? And here is the important thing for us to realize. It is by what he does. It is by what he has done. It is by what he is yet going to do. And that is why you'll find in the book of Revelation, you'll find him described in these terms, he was, he is, he is yet to be. How does this kingdom come? How does he admit us into this kingdom? Oh, I say the first principle to grasp is that he doesn't do it merely by teaching us. It isn't by giving us new ideas which we've got to put into practice. Do you know how he admits into the kingdom? I can tell you. It was all there in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. Why is he the one who has the right to break off the seals and to open the book? Here's the answer. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us unto God by thy blood. Not his teaching primarily, but by what he's done. And you know, this is the good news of the kingdom. It is what God has done. You remember the apostle Peter preaching under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost at Jerusalem? What was he talking about? Well, this is what the people said. They said, what is this? For they said, we are hearing all these men speaking in our own language. 
the wonderful works of God. That's the good news of the kingdom. The wonderful works of God. That's what the whole Bible is, you know. The works of God. God coming down into the garden, speaking his word. God destroying the Tower of Babel. God calling out Abram. God forming a nation. God taking them down to Egypt. God bringing them out of Egypt. It's God, the wonderful works of God, bringing in his kingdom. But above all, the works, the wonderful works of God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we are admitted into the kingdom. What do you mean, says someone? Well, let me just give you some headings as I close. The incarnation. What do you mean, says someone? Well, let me tell you. Forget for the moment, my dear friend, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, his ethical teaching that only applies to people who are in his kingdom. Wait a moment, this is what you've got to realize. Who is this? And the answer is that, I've, as I've already told you, this is the only begotten Son of God. How can I enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? There's only one way. It is only in and through this person. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the door. Well, how is he the door? How has he become the door? How can I enter through him? How has he become the door, I ask? And here's the answer. The incarnation. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his own son, made of a woman, made under the law that he might redeem them that are under the law. What does it mean? Let me read to you this immortal description of it in Paul's epistle to the Philippians chapter 2. Listen. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and every mouth should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There it is. And this is what it means. You and I are born in the world and born in sin. We belong to it and its doom is upon us. The only way of escape is to be in that kingdom. He alone enables us to enter. He's the door. How has he become the door? There's the answer. There he was in the form of God. From eternity. In eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, living that life of perfect bliss and correspondence without beginning and without end, everlastingly one, the triune God. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. That has been interrupted. 
out of the glory, the majesty. The second person has come. Though he was in the form of God, he counted it not robbery to be equal with God, which means this. He didn't hold on to his rights, to his prerogatives. He didn't say, why should I go from heaven to earth to save such miserable wretches, such vile rebels, at those people who spat in your face and who rebelled against you and have gone their own way? Why should I leave my glory and my perfect unmixed bliss and go down on earth and be subject to such people? He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That everlasting being, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, entered into the virgin's womb, humbled himself, and was born in the form, the likeness of a man, yes, a helpless babe. The incarnation. This is the thing to be thinking about. Forget the teaching I say for the time being. Face this momentous fact that nearly 2,000 years ago that babe was born in Bethlehem. And he, I say, is the everlasting eternal son of God. But he's come down in the flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In order that he might become the door. In order that you and I who believe in him shouldn't go to perdition and to the hell that's awaiting the world. But that we should enter the kingdom and be the people of God and eternally safe and secure. He interrupted as it was, as it were, the glory of eternity. And came into this sinful world. Can you imagine what it cost him, what it meant to him? He is the one through whom all things that have been made and without whom nothing has been made that is made. He is the everlasting word looking into the face of the Father and dwelling with... But here he is and here he is speaking on earth. A man, truly man, truly God. Two natures in one person. Do you think I could possibly spend an evening with you in giving my little feeble opinions about modern political and social questions when I've got something like this to tell you? The Son of God has come down on earth to dwell. He has tabernacled among us. Look at his life of obedience. Made under the law. He lived his life as everybody else. He lived as a Jew. He observed the law of God. There was nothing he failed to do. He went regularly into the synagogue on the Sabbath like everybody else. He received instruction. He grew in wisdom and in stature. A life of obedience. Why did he do it? Oh, that he might become the door through which you and I can enter. Look at him being tempted. Forty days and forty nights in the wilderness. We are told that God neither tempteth any man nor can be tempted. God can't be tempted. He's everlasting light. But here is God the Son tempted in all points like as we are. Forty days and forty nights in the wilderness undergoing temptation. What for? That he might open the door of the kingdom to you and to me. That he might be a sympathetic and faithful high priest touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Look at him there, in mortal combat with the devil. 
Why did he do this? Why did he suffer it? Why did he thus battle with the devil and conquer him? He has told us himself. The strong man armed, he says, keepeth his goods at peace. The strong man armed is the devil, and we are the goods, and he wants to deliver us. He alone can do it. So he fought him, and he robbed him of his armor wherein he trusted, and he set us at liberty. That's why he's done it, that we might enter the kingdom. But finally, he receives warnings that Herod the king and the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees are plotting his death. That they've got it all worked out that he only has to go up to Jerusalem and they'll arrest him and condemn him and kill him. And yet what happens? We are told he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. His dearest followers pleaded with him not to go. He said, I must. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. What's he doing there? He's going to die. Ride on. Ride on in majesty. He could have avoided that death. He said himself that he could easily command twelve legions of angels. And they would deliver him and waft him to heaven. Quite simply, quite easily. But no, he has said the Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom. For many, he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He went deliberately to his death. He died upon the cross. What for? To become the door? It is through his broken body we enter in. It is by his shed blood. He is the door. And then he dies. They bury him. And there he is in the grave. But he rises. He bursts us under the bands of death. He rises triumphantly o'er the grave. What's he doing? Opening the door of the kingdom. Delivered for our offenses. Raised again for our justification. That's how he does it. It isn't by his teaching. It is by his coming, his living, his conquering the devil and temptation and sin, his death upon the cross, his burial, his resurrection. Oh, yes, he is worthy to take the role and to break the seals and to unfold the scroll of history. Why? Well, thou wast slain and thou hast redeemed us. He's the Lord of history because he came into history and has thus earned the right to be its master, its executor, its determiner. And God has given him the role and the kingdom of God is open only to those who come in and through. The Lord Jesus Christ. That is how he admits us into the kingdom. There was no other way. It is the only way still. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. I say it is not only the way. It is the only way. 
Couldn't a word from heaven have done it, says someone. Couldn't another bit of teaching have done it. Couldn't God forgive us because his love? The answer is no. He came and did all I've been telling you. Because it was the only way, God willing, I hope to explain to you next Sunday night why it was the only way, why it had to happen. But I cannot leave you this evening without making this plain and clear and simple to you. There is only one way of getting into that kingdom. It is through Jesus Christ. He so loved you that he left the courts of heaven and humbled himself and was born into utter poverty in a stable in a little place called Bethlehem. He endured the contradiction of sinners against himself, their spite, their malice, their spleen, their envy. He looked into the face of sin, he who was eternally pure. Yes, he even went to that cross and died. Why? Well, that you and I might be delivered. He's died for our sins. He's borne our punishment. He'll clothe us with his own righteousness. He is the door. And just as you are this evening, without waiting to try and cleanse yourself from any spot or stain, without trying to go out and live a better life, just as you are, come to him. He'll wash you. He'll cleanse you. He'll clothe you. He'll receive you. You'll be in the kingdom. And though you may have to die tonight, or though the final conflagration come tomorrow morning, it won't affect you. Safe in the arms of Jesus. Safe on his gentle breast. Enter the door. Blessed be his name, it is still open. Enter in and be saved.